0: God's word says in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Let's pray. Lord, as we wrap up this first section, I ask that the words said, the way they are received, will be to the praise of Your glory. Lord, may we see and delight in the wonderful inheritance we have in You. It's in Your Son's name we pray. Amen. Well, my brother often likes to mention a comic strip in which an elderly man is standing with his middle-aged son before a storage unit that is stuffed to the gills with possessions. The father, with pleasure, looks to his middle-aged son and says, One day, son, this will all be yours. His middle-aged son thinks, One day, this will all be mine. (laughs) The saying goes, One man's trash is another man's treasure. It's interesting to see the broad generational shifts in the way people think of possessions. My grandmother's generation, who lived through the Great Depression, thought of items as things to be saved, to be kept, to be preserved in case of one day when there might be trouble. To many in the youngest generation, who live with unbelievable wealth, minimalism and removing clutter is essential to enjoying life. Well, how do you think of possessions. Well, it's not often their first word, but almost a word every child quickly learns is mine. Their hand muscles quickly develop a firm grasp so they can cling onto whatever they deem is valuable. And parents then have to sort through the battlefields of property and possession rights of which child should have the toy. Is it decided by possession is nine-tenths of the law? If they've not played with the toy in weeks and they come in and you've told them, look, you need to share, can they go, well, hey, I got that for my birthday. Give it back to me. It's mine. What if they'd played with it earlier? Can they say, well, I was planning to come back to it. Well, How much time is needed? Was it coming back five seconds? I was playing with it five days ago. I was coming back to it. How much earlier is needed? I had a professor who told us that he told his children whoever touched the toys first, had the right to play with it. A few days later, he awoke to a racket coming from downstairs, and when he entered the room to investigate, he saw his son spread eagle on all the toys that he piled up, and he smilingly said, Dad, I touched them all first. Well, Paul concludes his one sentence of exuberant, overflowing praise to God by telling us of being a possession and also receiving a possession He does us this by reminding the Ephesians of the way God spoke of Israel. We've got to be careful. I'm going to have to give some grammatical terms this morning, but hopefully they'll be clear. In verses 11 and 12, the pronoun we is used, and I will try to make the argument that that is talking about Israel. Israel is God's treasured possession. But then in verse 13, he transitions and says, you Gentiles, Ephesians, you are also part of God's treasured possession now. And then in verse 14, he brings them together because he talks about our inheritance, showing God's plan in Christ, fully included the Gentiles. If you like to follow an outline, that's on the back of the bulletin. First, we, meaning Israel, were God's purposeful possession in the past. Then you, Gentiles, are God's promised possession in the present. And then our promised possession in the future. Beginning in verses 11 and 12. And it begins, and again, I warned you of these grammatical things. It begins with a passive verb. Now, you might be thinking, I kind of remember that a long time ago in school. I had to learn these crazy ideas. Passive verbs just mean the verb is giving the action to the subject. The subject receives the action. Whereas an active verb does the action. Jack and Jill ran up the hill. Jack and Jill did the running. That's an active verb. Jack and Jill were run over by the giant. That's passive. They were run over. They received the action of the verb. Well, the passive verb in verse 11 could be translated one of two ways. First, we were made an inheritance. In this case, the we's not doing anything. They were made an inheritance for someone else. The Old Testament talks about this often. Deuteronomy 4.20 says, "...the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be a people of his own inheritance." They were His possession. God brought them out of Egypt to have them in a special and unique way that He had no other people on the earth. Thus Psalm thirty-three twelve declares, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen as His heritage, as His possession. The second option for translating the verb in verse 11 is, We have obtained an inheritance. Again, the we's not doing anything, but the inheritance is given to them. And this is also taught in the Bible, 1 Peter 1, 3-4. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And the challenge is, in reading this, it could really be both by grammar and by what the rest of the Bible says. So, how do we make a choice? Well, as I read the rest of the book... It seems to me Paul is arguing for the former. That is, that we were made the possession. Let me explain why. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, 11 through 13. And then we'll look at another verse. Because often in Paul's openings of praises, of prayers, he will mention things that he then later expands on. And I think that's what he's doing here. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13, he writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Or look at chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs that's what he's talking about in 1 11 through 14 inheritance he's saying the mystery is gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body and partakers of the promise in christ jesus through the gospel so i think paul here in verses 11 verse 11 is introducing a theme the unity of jew and gentile in christ that he's going to expand upon as well second paul's use of pronouns and this will be the last really technical grammar thing seems to be making this point. In verse 11 and 12, notice it's in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, so that we, now he's going to define the we. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ. Who were the first people to hope in Christ? It was the Jews. And if you're in Sunday school this morning, we went into a long look into the scripture and how the apostles even peter needed to be shown a vision they needed to have it repeated three times and then had to go and see that god was working through cornelius and then the holy spirit also had to be given and it was at that point then peter said oh we should baptize these people too they had a hard time grasping that we are one in christ so we were the first to open christ i think that's referring to people of israel jews Thus, verse 13, when he says, In him you also, he's telling the Ephesians, you're not second-class citizens. In Christ, you are joined to everything that was given to Israel. And then he ties it together, verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. It's not now, well, we got Israel and Gentiles and they got God's two different groups. No, our inheritance together. So, here we see this, and Paul is reminding and teaching the Ephesians that God had a unique, special relationship with Israel. God specifically chose Israel out of all the people of the earth to be his treasured possession. But why is this important? You know, Why is it a great truth that we're a gift to God? You know, we want to be given gifts. Why is it a wonderful thing that we're a gift to God? Well, earlier Keith read for a For us from Zephaniah 3. And after he read the first eight verses, Keith was like, Well, those weren't the ones I was talking about because we hear those and sometimes we even go, I don't really want my co workers to know I think stuff like that's true. For God saying, My decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger, for in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. You might wonder, did Jonathan Edwards somehow sneak into the Old Testament all of his sinners-in-the-hands-of-an-angry-God views? Was it rewritten? No. Edwards' goal was not to create a vision of an angry God, but rather to be faithful to tell God's people how God had revealed His holy reaction to sin. Edwards also, even more so, loved to preach of God's work of redemption in Christ. And the beautiful reality is these truths go hand in hand. thus, in Zephaniah, right after these verses of God's judgment, God also declares his love, his delight in his people. That's why Zephaniah 3:16 and seventeen says, "Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save." He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with His love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God promised to be with them and save them and rejoice over them with singing, loud singing. But how can both of these be true? How can in the first eight verses of Zephaniah 3, God is promising judgment and then... He promises he's going to bless them. How can these things go together? How in the world could that happen and God be just? Now, that's a question that maybe doesn't make sense to you or many to most people today, but let me give an illustration. You may remember back in 2013, people were running in the Boston Marathon, and all of a sudden, bombs went off. Three people were killed, hundreds of people were injured. As soon as a man was arrested, brought to trial. There, he even confessed his guilt. All the evidence pointed to him doing it. And there was all the repercussions. Three people died. Now imagine if the trial ended with the judge declaring his verdict. Well, I want to make clear that I'm a merciful, loving type of judge. So not guilty. Forgiven. And in fact, I want you to come be a part of my family the American public would be in outrage. What are you doing? You're a judge. You have to declare what is right and wrong. So how can that judge not do that, but then we expect that God will forgive. That he'll say, oh, I'll forgive you. And in fact, why don't you just come be a part of my family? God knows all the evidence of sin. And as a just judge, he's not going to just say, I'm a merciful, loving type of judge, not guilty, forgiven. Since this is true, how can Zephaniah declare both these, that God punishes and God forgives? As well, how can Paul in Ephesians 1 tell a Gentile audience something that was promised to Israel? If I tell my children, hey, we're going to go out to eat later, which we're not, then... The other children can't come up and go, oh, we're going out to eat today? Well, I made that promise to my children. That wasn't to everyone. So how can Paul apply these Old Testament promises to Gentile Ephesian believers? Well, that is the second point. You are God's promised possession in the present. Because we see the answer to both of those questions in verse 13. In him... You also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So how could God be a just God and forgive sinners and rejoice over them? It's due to the in Him, which Paul has been saying over and over in these verses. It all began, look down at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing you know all spiritual blessings come to us only due to being in christ and then paul elaborates in these verses as we've noted this one long sentence of praise blessing after blessing and 10 times he connects it to being in or through christ let's just briefly note these look at one verse four even as he chose us in him verse five he predestined us as adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Verse 6, His glorious grace which, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, meaning in Jesus. In verse 7, in Him we have redemption. There's only one verse here so far that doesn't have it because we jump to verse 9. According to His purpose which He set forth in Christ. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. Verse 11, in him we have, an inherit- have obtained an inheritance. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. So over and over and over, Paul is making clear, every spiritual blessing comes because you are in Christ. Now, being in Christ is not some mystical, Gnostic language. For verse 13, it explains. This means we believe in Him. That's what it means to be in Him. By faith, we're connected to Christ. And one of the major blessings we examined last week in verse 7 is that in Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So how could God, the judge, who is always and always, sorry, always has been, is and always will be just, how can He declare forgiveness and rejoice over sinners? Because God, in His great love, sent Jesus to be the payment. That's the meaning of redemption. He was the payment of death that should be paid, so that for those who trust in Jesus, they have the forgiveness of sins. God has never said Eh, I'm just a merciful, loving type of judge, so not guilty, you're forgiven. God has always demanded justice, and thus every sin will be judged. Either the judgment will be paid by the person who committed the sin, or by faith you can turn to Jesus who has paid that penalty for your sins. In the Old Testament, the people of Israel looked forward to the coming Messiah, who would be the perfect sacrifice and payment. We see that even here, because Israel, he says, we hoped in Christ. Well, Christ is just the Greek word for the Old Testament word, Messiah. So now, Paul is declaring that these wonderful promises were not just for Israel, but verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Gospel of your salvation, sorry. So how can Paul apply these Old Testament promises to Gentile Ephesian believers? Well, because Jesus came to the, be the Messiah for all people. He didn't just come to be the Messiah for Jews, but for everyone. And that's why Paul will later say, Ephesians 3.6, This is the mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the same promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. As we talk with our Jewish friends, we need to make clear, Christianity is not an offshoot of the Old Testament. Rather, it's the flowering. It is what the Old Testament was all about, of the Messiah who would come. And the Ephesian believers receive the blessings of the gospel of Jesus by hearing and believing in Him. And notice what it says. In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth. I don't know what you think of Christianity, but we don't gather this morning just to tell ourselves a good story that isn't really true, but it makes us feel better. You know, these mythologies give meaning and purpose to our life. Now, the Bible is clear that these events happen in real space, in real time. These are true historical realities. That in a point in time, God the Father sent God the Son through the Spirit into the womb of Mary. And that He was then, is now, and forever will be fully divine and fully human. That He then lived for 33 years in the land of Israel, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God that Jesus was betrayed, arrested, falsely condemned, crucified, dead, and buried, yet also that He was resurrected from the dead, defeating sin and death. He then appeared to more than 500 people, and after a time ascended into heaven where He sits by the Father's throne. That's you know, it's not a myth to comfort us. That's history that happened and is true. Thus they heard the word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, and believed in Him, and were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. But did you notice there was no gap or phrase between heard, believed, and sealed? Notice there's no statement like, you heard the gospel, and then you lived your three years of devotion so that God would accept you. There's no time in which they had to prove themselves or show that, yes, we can be good enough so that God will accept us. It's simply by grace through faith. Hear the gospel of Jesus. Believe the gospel of Jesus, and at that instant, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. No second blessing is needed. No efforts on your part. Only a belief. In the Gospel. A recognition that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Instantly. At that moment. You know, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Savior, you don't now need to go and start making sure you go read your Bible, that you go, start going and coming to church more often. What you need to do is believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you'll be saved right now. You don't have to wait. And this is both the easiest and the hardest thing to do. It's easy. All you have to do is just trust. That's all you have to do. Yet it's hard, for there is a death to self and life to God. Jesus is Lord, and thus your life must now, in response, be a joyful submission to Him. Now, Christianity often gets confused as being about moral teachings, a political or philosophical movement, or that there's rituals you have to follow. Now, Christianity does have those elements, but the core message is not, about what you do, but rather about what Christ has done. It's not about your actions, but rather about trusting simply in Jesus. Yes, there will be implications for your morals, for your philosophy, for your rituals, yet those are the fruit of faith. The fruit of your salvation, not the root and cause of it. And if you believe in Christ, notice that you are sealed by the promised Spirit. That's what he tells us in verse verse 13, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Now when we talk about the Spirit of God, we don't mean the animating force in the universe that you can tap into through meditation and various practices. Nor does the Bible teach that the Spirit is like the force in Star Wars, an invisible energy field created by all living things that surrounds us, penetrates us, and binds the galaxy together. That might make a fun movie, but it's not true. The Spirit is not just a power. Nor was He a JV player who until Pentecost just couldn't get off the bench, but now He's got a full-time job. No, God, the Holy Spirit, has existed eternally as a personal being, fully equal in essence and power with God the Father and God the Son. Though the New Testament highlights His role more, He has always been active with the trinity in the verses 13 through 14 paul declares three things about the spirit he was promised he's the seal and he's a guarantee first we see here that the spirit was promised and this promise really includes three parts he was promised in the old testament he was promised by jesus and he's promised to us still today in the old testament ezekiel thirty six twenty seven says <laughs> God says, excuse me, and I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Or Joel 2.28, God promises, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Jesus also promised the Holy Spirit would come in a unique way, for he told his disciples in John 15, 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, that's the Helper, the Holy Spirit, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. After Jesus rose again, he gave his disciples instructions in Acts 1, through 4-5, which says, And while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So the Old Testament promised the Spirit. Jesus reaffirmed the promise, and then in Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples, and Peter declared, This is the fulfillment of Joel 2, that we just mentioned a minute ago. Peter then extended that promise of the spirit for he says in acts 2 38 repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the holy spirit again notice everyone who has faith in jesus receives the holy spirit he's not a second blessing for those in their christian walk He is the immediate blessing. He's right here. We're being showed. He's the seal of our salvation. And that's the second thing we get from the Spirit. He's a seal. Now, that's a seal of ownership, not a seal of preservation. Sometimes people seal their packages so they don't get damaged. It's not that type of seal. It's a seal of ownership. This summer, while Sarah and I were in Colorado, we went to Canyon City. And there, on one of the downtown buildings, they had this huge, massive structure and on it, it read, the Fremont County Cattlemen's Association Brand Board. And from 1897, they have put up huge rectangular wooden pieces that say the name of the cattle owner and their brand. So if you, probably not today, but if you happen to see a random cow walking down Canyon City, you could go, ah, they have the Circle X. That is the cow of whoever it may be. Their brand says, owned by... This person. A seal in Paul's time accomplished a similar task. It showed ownership. It showed authenticity. Hot wax would be poured onto a surface, and then with a ring or some kind of stamp, they would pour it into the wax, pull it away, and then you would know. That is the seal showing this is from that person. We even see this in the Old Testament. When Daniel is thrown into the lion's den, the king comes and he puts his ring... And sealed it showing that no one can release him. Or you may be familiar with the book of Esther where King Ahasuerus gives several royal decrees. And each time it says that he used his signet ring, putting a seal on it to show that it could not be changed. And the implication of our being sealed is stated like this by one pastor. When God gives us his Holy Spirit, it's as if he stamps us with a seal that reads, This person belongs to me. And is an authentic citizen of my divine kingdom and member of my divine family. Every believer has been sealed with the Spirit. You are an authenticated person who will now and forever be God's child. There is one slight difference, though, between the seals that were made of wax and the seals we receive. Those seals in wax are external, the seal of the Spirit is internal. In our hearts. That's why Romans eight fifteen through 17 says, For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs. That's what he's talking about here in Ephesians 1. And heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Thus, the seal of the Spirit is nothing external that we can see. And that's not true for every religion. Sometimes religions have an external thing that clearly identifies them. You know, if you have friends who are Sikh, or Amish, or Muslim women, they all have clothing, that immediately you look at them and go, oh, they're Amish, or oh, that man's a Sikh. Christians have no clothing, per se, that we put on. And yet, while there are no visible signs on our body, there should be visible signs in our actions. Now, the whole context is knowing we're sealed as God's inheritance. And as we'll see next, we're going to be given an inheritance. But Paul will later add in this letter, in Ephesians 5.5, 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral, or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That is because if we're truly believed, if we're truly sealed by the Spirit of God, then that Spirit will work in us to lead moral lives. Not perfect, not always as it should be, but that there is a direction in our life towards godliness. Thus, we are God's treasured possession Jew and Gentile. And we see last at the end of verse 14. That we are also given treasured possessions by God. We're given an inheritance. The third point. Our promised possession in the future. So Paul has shown that the spirit is promised. That he's a seal. And now third verse 14 says the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our inheritance. Until we acquire possession of it. The word Guarantee, the Greek word, comes from the idea of uh, an idea from commercial trade, a down payment, an installment, so that the person who is selling it knows, oh, this person is actually going to pay for the rest of this. And the sad reality is we want things like guarantees, down payments, installments, because people break their word. People promise to do something that they don't later do. And yet nothing will ever keep God from keeping His promises. God who promised is faithful. And unlike humans who sometimes rewrite their wills, add someone to their will, get more or less possessions so they have to change what they can't even give away, God's will, so to speak, is never going to change. We don't have to have a concern that some caretaker is going to come in in old age and manipulate him to write us in or out or give everything to them. God who promised is faithful. His inheritance will be given to His children. Yet though God's word is enough to guarantee His promise, He also gives us the promised spirit both as seal and guarantee of our inheritance. Though the word for guarantee originated out of commercial trade, my understanding is that in modern Greek the word is used for an engagement ring, which is really a quite fitting metaphor. And what does engagement mean? So when a man goes and he asks a woman to marry him and gives her a ring. And the ring symbolizes, if she accepts it, that is, a change in their relationship. She wears it and now they're no longer just two people. They're engaged. And it is also a promise of what is going to come. A wedding and life together. So the ring is both a present gift, just as the spirit is a present gift, and the ring is a promise of a future relationship just like the spirit is the promise of a future relationship and we're being shown here not just a future relationship a future inheritance first peter 3 4 tells us of this inheritance that is imperishable undefiled unfading kept in heaven for you first thing peter said is it's imperishable it's incorruptible and we know everything around us it perishes it corrupts buildings deteriorate cars need maintenance our bodies decline but our inheritance with god will never perish or corrupt second our inheritance is undefiled meaning it's pure you remember you got those new pair of white shoes they were so fresh So clean. But a year later you wonder, did I buy cream shoes? They don't even look white anymore. They become defiled. Our inheritance in heaven will never lose its freshness, its newness, its purity. It will be fresh forever. Third, our inheritance is unfading. Someone gives you a beautiful bouquet of flowers and you love them. But a week later, they're all drooping and dead in contrast our inheritance with God will always be pristine it'll always be in perfect condition you'll never have to go out and wax it repaint it prep it for winter you'll never have to wonder well is this model 2.0 but nine months model 3.0 is going to come around and they're no longer going to keep up the updates for this system the inheritance will be perfect forever imperishable, undefiled, unfading. But not only those things, it's also kept in heaven for you. The location is secure, but even better than that is that God's power guards it. We use door locks, fences, passwords, ID cards, thumbprints, facial recognition, security guards, cameras. We do all these things to guard what's valuable. And every single one of those has been broken or Hardwired so it changes, so people can go in and steal what's there. God's power protects your inheritance in heaven. It is safe and secure. And this implies that our full inheritance is in the future. Again, the spirit like that engagement ring is a present enjoyment. You can look down and go, I'm married, or I'm going to be married. I have a new relationship, and yet it's a promise. There's more to come. So the Spirit is an appetizer of all the blessings we will get as heirs with Christ. So when when will we acquire possession of it? Well, either when Jesus returns, or we die and face the judgment of God. Thus for Christians, though death is very sad, it is also joyful. We do not grieve as those without hope, for death is not the end. Death takes us to be the one, be with the one who views us as his treasured possession. Death is the door that allows us to enjoy the treasured possessions he will give us in our inheritance with Christ. If you pay attention to the news, you'll know that Queen Elizabeth recently died. Many articles have been written on the great wealth her family then inherited. I read one about Prince William, who's now the owner of the Cornwall Estate. In 1337, King Edward III acquired it and built on this property that spans 140,000 acres. Just for reference, that's about 218 square miles, and the city of Wichita Falls is about 72 square miles. So at the Passing of his grandmother, Prince William, was given a possession that was three times the size of our city. But it's not just land, though. It has beautiful buildings. And it's so beautiful, so ancient, that it's valued at $1.2 billion. That's quite an inheritance. Now, most likely the royal family did not do what most of us are going to have to do when a family member dies. It's always hard to know the right time to bring this up. But at some point, you have to sit down over a table, pull out the document, and go, all right, here's the will. We need to walk through who all's going to get this and that. Now, I'm sure the royal family has so many lawyers and advisors that they never sat down at a table. But let's just imagine they did. And there's Prince William and King Charles talking. And he's telling William, you get the Cornwall estate. Well, William could pause and go, hey, Kate, come in here. Did you know we just got the Cornwall estate? Well, why can Kate get the Cornwall estate? She wasn't born into the family. Well, she was brought in by marriage and we can be brought in to a much greater inheritance than a Cornwall estate. The Cornwall estate, it's going to perish. It's going to become defiled. They're going to have to do upkeep. They're going to have to do maintenance. And even if they keep it in perfect condition, Kate and William, they're going to die. They don't get to enjoy it forever. God has promised his children an inheritance that will last forever. He's promised that you are my possession. God has made us rich and wonderful promises to all those who trust in Christ. He says to them, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Let's pray. Oh Lord, what a glorious truth that you would call us yours. That you would care for us. That you would love us. That you would sing over people like us. Oh Lord, we are overwhelmed by your grace. Would you... Help us today to delight in all that You've given us in Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.